And that's a key, isn't it? Is the sense of being able to connect the dots. And if you don't treat the problem, the problem doesn't go away. But I think even the general public and recognizing that we all play a part in prevention. Terry, it's really, really difficult to take a normal person and turn them into a killer. And now, the safety zone. Welcome, Mike, to another episode of the Safety Zone. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. We are going to dive back a little bit and coming up here as we enter into Christmas season on December 14th, 2012 is a, a date that many people remember. I know for myself, I live in Connecticut, and New England, and that was the day of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. My daughter actually at the time was in fourth grade, and I remember hearing the news reports and probably like any parent, you just have such a startling reaction and actually fear, even for our own children while they were in school. But on that day, of course, a very troubled young man went into the elementary school, shot his way through, and killed 20 little, you know, first graders, kindergartners, age six, seven-year-olds, just babies. And, and as well as that, six staff. And then, of course, he had killed his mother that morning. A tragic, horrible event. And of course, we've had many, as you know, Mike, many shootings, various different big capacities. But this particular one, I think it particularly drives our heart because of the innocence of these little children, really just babies. And to have such a horrible thing happen. And you think of just the fear in those little ones and their minds and their hearts. And then, of course, we are eternally grateful for the adults that tried to protect and, and to halt. So we just, we want to remember these families who to this day, of course, struggle and well understood in losing their, their children. But kind of just want to take a look at that because Mike, you of course specialize in violence prevention in your years of experience in that. And I think one thing that really stood out about this particular shooting as well, besides the age of the victims and the amount, is this was a young man who had a long trail of problems, may not have been known publicly, but was definitely known by the parents and the you know, the officials of schools, but also of the psychiatrists and psychologists that he's seen. So just want to really dive into this and just talk about that day and, and what we know, but also just in how we protect, especially our children in whatever capacity that may be schools, churches, just the vulnerability that our children have. A lot of lessons here. When you look at Sandy Hook, I think a couple things stick out and, and you mentioned them very young. We're talking about an elementary school, which is really much more the exception. We typically think of more high school or middle school, but still generally more high school related shootings or armed intruders. So the fact that these are small kindergartners, first graders, even when you look at a lot of the programs over the years that have been designed for students, run, hide, fight, these kind of programs, you're talking about an age group that's still 100% dependent upon that teacher, right? They're going to do only what that teacher does in that classroom. They're not really capable um to run, hide, or fight. I think a, a, another kind of thing that I have noticed come out of Sandy Hook very quickly is the, the way he got into the building. You know, the doors were locked. That's what we would say. I mean, unfortunately, I go to schools yet today and the doors aren't locked. So the fact that the doors were locked, that's a good thing. But he shot his way into the building. And so 
is that something that, that schools need to think about? Well, well, of course it is. And you've seen bullet-resistant uh, film and the idea of bulletproof anything is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as bulletproof. It's bullet-resistant. It just slows it down. I mean, and really, that's what you're looking for in most of these armed intruder events is slowing it down and buying the time to get law enforcement there. Seconds matter. You probably heard that phrase a lot. But I think because he shot his way into the building, almost the initial reaction to this after just the sorrow and overwhelming feeling of grief for that community, I think the reaction was, we've got to make our buildings harder. So it still exists today throughout the country. There's a a lot of organizations selling products that are playing into fear of structure. And do not get me wrong, physical structure has to be addressed. You have to look at these things. But let's be honest, you look at Lanza here, the shooter, If you keep him out of the building, it doesn't change the underlying issue that drove him over there to kill. If he cannot get into the building, does it happen in the parking lot? Does it happen down the street? Does it happen at the bus stop? And so I think when you look at these incidents like this, we have to really focus on, and this is where I think when you look at the research where there's been a lot of focus on the mom who was killed before he went to the school, there's been a lot of focus on mental health professionals. Their hands were a little bit tied because they couldn't commit him and that they were really dealing with more surfaced issues with him. I, I've heard a lot that his mom would try to do things to keep his stress level down because when stress things happened with him, but they weren't really treating the problem. And if you don't treat the problem, the problem doesn't go away. And that's where the threat assessment, you hear a lot more about threat assessment today. You know, there's several models in terms of being able to assess threat. And, and the idea is, I mean, even if you go to Parkland, much more recently, a few years ago, Parkland, there was lots of red flags. The problem is they were all in silos. I got a red flag. You got a red flag. Somebody else has a red flag. You got one red flag and you just, you know, but as a threat assessment model where I'm working collectively and sharing information and trying to get to the heart of what is the problem, I all of a sudden realized, well, we got 12 red flags. We've got a major, major problem on our hands right here that has to be dealt with and addressed. I think those are a couple of the lessons coming out of Sandy Hook that maybe got us misfocused for a while on only one aspect. And, you know, we're a 360 security solutions company. Any one piece of what we do in this puzzle can be helpful, but it will not solve the whole problem until you create that continuous 360 model. And so just focusing on the one aspect, like the physical security helps, but it will not solve the overall issue of why would somebody want to bust through our doors and come in and kill? Well, I learned something new today, Mike. I didn't know things weren't bulletproof. I, I mean, I you hear that term all the time, bulletproof vest, presidential details and the, the armored cars. So that was actually something new that I learned today that it slows it down, but not necessarily bulletproof. But you brought up a really good point, which I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, that in a lot, not all, but in a lot of these cases, like you said, Parkland, and I believe even Sutherland Springs, the church shooting, there wasn't a connection of the information of the red flags. 
you know, they're like you said, they were in independent silos, and it was the same thing at Sutherland Springs, where they didn't have the information on that perpetrator, hadn't been put into the database. I believe it was one of the military branches. And that's a key, isn't it? Is this sense of being able to connect the dots and, and have that information coming from, you know, all the different streams that they that they have this information compiled. Yeah, it's really impossible for a threat assessment team to make any kind of threat decision unless you have all the information. And so being able to sh collect and share and, and be able to access all of this information is very critical for schools or any organization that's trying to protect our children. And it's not even just with armed intruder. As we educate organizations on child sex abuse and prevention, it's pattern behavior. We use the word patterned a lot. We're getting ready to film some new training videos on grooming. And if you really don't understand it, you can actually enable people to think everybody's a groomer because, oh, I saw him do that. I saw her do that. She's grooming. Right. It is patterned. Yeah. And so we use this word patterned a lot. When I look at the most recent Secret Service report that came out last fall and what bold statement that the director of the Secret Service made that school shootings are preventable. He did not say some of them. He said, these are preventable mm -hmm. events. And the reason, as you dig through this report, is these are not isolated, emotion-driven. This guy in Sandy Hook, Lanza, did not snap one morning, kill his mom, go to school and kill. These were very well-fueled and thought out. He had a history of violent video games and interest in violence and killing and mass killings and, and weapons. I think, even a, I think even a notebook, didn't he? Correct. Of, of him drawing out pictures and saying he wanted to kill children. And I mean, there was a lot of different notes. Exactly. People that were trying to help him knew, as well as his parents. And we try to write some of this stuff off. I mean, there's actually a book. It's uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. And he was he's an interesting man because he was, our, I believe, Army Special Forces. and But he's also a psychologist or psychiatrist now, but Special Force trained military. And he's written a book years ago called On Killing. Pretty blunt title, but he, he has taken on the video game industry for years, but not necessarily super successful. That's a multi-billion dollar lobby right there. But he talks about, if you think about years ago, and here I go, I'm going to date myself. So <laughs> I grew up on Atari and some people yes, just say, uh, yeah, <laughs> others are listening going, I don't even have a clue what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google it. But how unrealistic when you look at that, right? Black and white, paddle, white ball, television, back and forth. Then you look at the video games of today, real distinctive. And so when you went, if you go through Grossman's book, he really lays this out and he, he parallels how the training in the military changed over time and why prior to Vietnam, we had very low kill ratios in the military. It's really, really difficult to take a normal person and turn them into a killer. That mm -hmm. they, they said they would talk about even back in the Civil War, finding dead soldiers that had multiple rounds in their weapon. So they act like they fired, 
but they didn't pull the trigger. They just couldn't pull the trigger, and but they knew they needed to act like it. So then they were loading their weapon again. They just kept loading their weapon, but they were never pulling the trigger. So he said, we changed our training going into Vietnam. We quit shooting static Q targets, and we started shooting human beings. You know, we our targets looked real. And so we kind of immersed our soldiers into death. Well, our kill ratios went from very low to very high. And then you look at my dad's generation and, and a, a lot of men that I think the world of that served over there that are still to this day in their yes. mid-70s and are older dealing with the repercussions yes. of what they were trained to do. And he, yes. he compares that to the video games of today. So, yeah. Well, you the know. virtual reality. I, I It's astonishing, like you said, that it's it says in a little paper, like going out to a shooting range and, and shooting the, the, the paper silhouette and the and the things. I mean, these are normal looking neighborhoods, normal looking people. And and it creates the, the desensitizing of of probably distinguishing between what's real and what is not. Absolutely. And part of that, that desensitization is what plays into being able to then do this, right? I taught on violence against women and children for going on 30 years now. And I've talked extensively about the media and almost the the sexualization of the media and just that continuous images that you see in the media and how that can desensitize you and change the way you think or feel about different sexes. I tell you, one of the most alarming things as we talked a little bit about the media, is I read a statistic one time, my grandparents compared to me, I will have been exposed to more violence in one year through media television than my grandparents would have been exposed to in their entire lifetime. Yeah. Now, this statistic came out like 15, 20 years ago. So what does that look like even between my kids and me because of how much more we see in TV and media today? So it's not a single factor here. You look at this Lanza again, that fixation on violence, the video games. He's also come from a family that divorced. We don't know everything that was going on in the family. It sounded like he was probably given a lot of what he wanted to keep his stress level low, to keep him placated, um, low frustration tolerance. I mean, a lot of these themes you'll see in the Secret Service Guide that should have been picked up on a long time before this. Mike, I think one of the bold headlines that you made a comment about that really just strikes me is about the preventability that the Secret Service report said. And like, like you said, it wasn't some. It was all of these are preventable. And when you think about that, I think a lot of times we feel like in our society, and you know, we're always hearing stuff, horrible things happening, whether it's women, maybe shootings can be anybody. And of course, we've seen that across the spectrum. But even beyond the shootings, you know, the, the child sexual abuse and in places that you never dream in churches, volunteers, youth pastor. And we see this. And I think a lot of times we, we feel the public, you feel helpless. You see these things taking place and and you, you feel, what can we do about that? You know, how do you control that? And I, I think what has been so vital of what you're doing is besides your actual, the 360 security solutions and the technology that you have in the programs, but the education that there are ways 
that we can prevent things, even just as the public, whether you're a volunteer at church, whether you're someone, you know, working in the schools, that there are things that can, practical things that can be done. And a lot of it really comes down to education, knowing what to look for, correct? Well, absolutely true. And I would even go one step further. And as we work with organizations that I don't, it doesn't matter if you're a school, a church, a volunteer organization, a corporation, it really doesn't matter. When we talk about protecting and prevention, the first thing we assess as a company is we have to make sure that you have a culture of prevention. And that seems so illogical because you think, Well, who wouldn't believe in prevention? Well, I can tell you right now, as an example, we started this program in Nashville. I helped start it back in the early 90s because we had 25 women and children killed every year. And we looked at it. We had all these red flags, all this data. They were asking for help multiple times before they were killed. We implemented a program and we reduced those murders the first year by 50%. So an incredible impact. People were alive that statistically were dying just because we made a shift. As I took that program out as a consultant and was training all across the United States and Europe, you would be shocked at how many of the law enforcement departments would just be like, "Eh, you can't really prevent that. You can't stop it. He gets mad. He hits her. Something happens. We show up. I had to spend most of my time in the community initially getting them to believe that violence can be prevented. Anything else I do, any other solution, any other software, any other alert system, everything else we want to do will never work until I get the organization to a point where they believe that this is preventable. I'm not sure every school believes that yet. And so we spend a lot of times with school districts. And for me, it's almost an aha moment when you see it go off with a a superintendent or an administration of a school, because that is so encouraging at the point I realize this could be prevented. Does it mean every single incident moving forward will be prevented? That's not going to happen. But when we talk about prevention, the vast majority of these incidents can be prevented. That's That's empowering. It is empowering. And it's just in listening to you, we're talking about with even with the police and having to convince them our society. And I think everything we do, I think even our minds, to be honest, we are wired to react, to react to people or react to situations. So a lot of what we see in our society is the reactionary to something happening. And I think we've heard many times just publicly, well, you know, those things are going to happen. You can't, what are you going to do about it? You can't prevent it. it. There is a real pervasive culture of of non-prevention, mm-hmm. really of non-believability that you can prevent. And like you said, you're not even talking about preventing. Obviously, we'd like to prevent everything. But still, if there's a lot that you can prevent, certainly that's the road you want to go down. And, and it's interesting in the whole context of sexual abuse, no matter where that is. And of course, we're seeing that so often now in any, like you said, any organization, any format. And yet the reality is if people are educated, they can have that same thing, that aha moment, you know, of, oh, understanding what to look for, knowing what the red flags are and how important that is. It would seem like to not only to the organizations, but I think even the general public and recognizing that we all play a part in prevention. 
It's all about early intervention. I've gone into communities and, and law enforcement and prosecutors say, hey, we're taking a tough stand on felonies. We're going to focus all of our effort on felonies. And I can distinctly remember being on the West Coast one time years ago. And when they had said this to me, I said, I'll come back in a year and nothing will have changed. And they were like, what? I said, if you only focus on the felonies, that violence has escalated so long and to a point when it gets to the felony level, all you're doing is reacting to it as a police or a prosecutor. You're going in, you're investigating, and you're trying to incarcerate. That's all you're doing at that point. I said, where you make the difference, I said, from the criminal justice, where we made the difference in Nashville is we got involved as soon as there was anything, a push, a shove, a threat, long before it went down that road of escalation, because it will, it will continue to escalate, just like in these armed intruders or the school shootings, this stuff all escalates. The grooming, it's no different when you're talking about child abuse or child sex abuse. Generally, yes, you have opportunistic offenders, no doubt about that. But you also have those people who offend, they start out here and they're trying to groom or do things. If we cut them off and stop that, it doesn't get to here. And I think that's what what happens a lot of times is we don't know where to start. We don't know where to focus. And that's why I tell communities, it's a community response to end violence. I live in suburb of Indianapolis, and we've had just horrible murder rates for a decade. And I see a lot of things that have happened in and around Indianapolis. I used to see the pastors were extraordinarily engaged. So you've got the faith-based community community used to be really engaged. You're getting to the young people. You're creating programs. You're intervening. The police cannot do this alone. It's almost too late by the time it becomes a police issue. So we want to blame the police when in reality, the community has to bear some responsibility because oftentimes, even the school, oftentimes there's things happening in the community and it just comes into the the school now. And so we have to be able to get involved and intervene. When we look at these school-based shootings, when you look at Sandy Hook, I don't want to be dealing with Adam Lanza at the point he's trying to get in that front door and is shooting his way in. Where I would have loved to have dealt with him was years prior to this when he was showing unacceptable type behaviors. He wasn't a killer. What I would love is these numbers drop so low that you don't even know you're preventing murders because you're getting involved long before. But the the other part of that, look at all the other behaviors you're going to address, say, within that school district, the bullying behaviors. It's about helping the kid, too. I mean, if you really look at, you know, I look at that Parkland and I look at Cruz and I go, man, think about what that, you know, he loses one parent. My kids lost a mom. I know what it's like to lose one parent and have a stable home, lose one parent and not have a stable home. Then he loses the second parent. And you start to sense, how did nobody wrap their arms around this kid and say, he's going to need some help. He has just been handed two devastating blows in life. And I think a lot of times we want to focus on just dealing with this criminal when in fact I'm talking about dealing with the seventh or eighth grader or ninth grader and helping the child, not even thinking about whether or not that child escalates into somebody like this. It's that early intervention. And that's true with that. And even with Adam Wallens, I mean, there was a long road 
before he got to Sandy Hook. And, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, obviously, for the victims, but, it, but it's also heartbreaking for the perpetrators, and especially when they are adolescents, when they're, they're younger, that something has gone amiss in their lives and there wasn't the right kind of intervention at the right time that could help prevent these types of things from happening. Like, how do you approach informing, just in, for an example, with your clients? How do you approach the prevention model? It's a 360 model, so that does include the education part as well as actual technology, right, and products. That's correct. I would say education is the foundation of everything we do because the products I provide you are not going to be real relevant if you don't believe they're going to do something for you. A, a lot of times the visitor management systems, these are just great tools to build upon a culture or a climate of prevention. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, we're, we're actually creating it for safe ministry. Tomorrow we're filming five videos, experts all around the United States that are part of our team coming in and they're going to focus on different aspects, grooming. And I don't want to just give you statistics. These are solution-based trainings. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get training and then you're going to have a, a component of training on informed intuition. Well, what does that mean? Well, now that you've been trained, now that you understand these things, how do I put it together? How do I recognize pattern behavior? And now what do I do with it? What we're trying to do is for our large, our church ministries is to empower these volunteers and staff members to become the front line of defense. And we're not creating vigilantes. That's why the training has to be very good. It has to focus on patterns, not just isolated things you see or hear. And we do this in a way where they can digest it. There's no 35, 40 minute, one hour video on to the next. We're doing this in four to eight minutes. Like we are going to get you information and it's going to be relevant and deep. And then you're going to answer a few questions and you're going to do about five or six of these videos as you onboard as a volunteer. But now you have an education and you have informed intuition, and you know what to do with that information when you see these pattern behaviors. So you now become the defense. And that's something we can all do. I, I know that even in the schools, it's the see something, say something, the, or the child that's the loner, you know, reaching out to that person. And sometimes they can seem like small things, right? And yet they're very important parts of the, of the, overall puzzle of prevention. But of course, and on the other side is, I think a lot of people probably wouldn't think that there are signs to look for, for sexual abuse, for, yeah. for a groomer. And yet there are, and they're practical solutions, practical things to look for and to apply. Mike, how anyone listening to the show, if there's people really interested in the education of that, and especially in a, in a, just such a practical serving way in the sense that they, it's something that everybody can understand, something everybody can do. How do they learn about this education model. Yeah, just go to our website, safehiringsolutions.com. We're launching this new safe ministry training in January. So right after the holidays, we'll be rolling this out. That's wonderful. Well, we just like to um, encourage everyone to keep the families of Sandy Hook victims in prayer. It's always a difficult time for them, especially with Christmas. And um, so to, to just lift up some thoughts and prayers for them. And Mike, thank you again for the, for the wisdom and, you know, for the encouragement 
I, I think a lot of times in our nation, we feel hopeless or we feel like there's nothing we can do. We watch everything happen and, and we just feel helpless. And it's just, it's really rather, it's encouraging that there are things we can do to help prevent some of the things that we see that are just so tragic. So thank you again. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.